0: Hello and welcome to the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast with me, Clive Barber, and my good mate, Noel Tom. For the days when you can't ride your bike, there's always the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 8. And today we're joined by Brett Anderson, who's going to be talking about His last big ride, lastbigride.org.
1: I have met Nick. Uh, I spent some time with him and his family uh, when I rode my FJR through uh, Europe. And I had kind of known Nick through online earlier, uh, through Instagram and stuff like that, and through the AJP. Uh, we have a little technical WhatsApp group and everything. And so finally got the chance to meet him and I uh, stayed at his house for a couple of days. Just great, great guy, really good guy.
0: Yeah, he seems quite a character. We've kind of got, got to know him through being in these films and doing this podcast, and he's always very, very sarcastic to us. <laughs> he it's told me internet. to be
1: prepared, but he said it wasn't big enough, but he <laughs> my largest spanner. So <laughs> that's, that's my big tool.
2: We should have, There should be a separate category for adjustables. Whoa, that is pretty impressive, though. It's quite a big one.
1: Yeah. Brett's got so a massive one. It's a good one. one. It's, it's, it's a massive tool.
2: <laughs> well, you're in America, Brett. Is that a metric? Well, it doesn't, well, doesn't it's count, it? Did so does you a really say adjustable? that? <laughs> yeah.
0: edit, uh, edit that out.
1: I'm so, uh, so uh,
0: leaving that bit. <laughs> just for the listeners, Noel just looked at an adjustable spanner and asked if it was metric. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, God.
1: Well, in, in answer, it says 18 inches right there. So oh, there we so go, go. you see. T- Justified. So I'm in a town called Hot Springs, Virginia, all of, uh, I think it's got about 800 people. Our whole county has 4,000 people. We don't have a single stoplight in the county, which is wonderful. And I'm right along, I don't know if your listeners have heard of the back backcountry discovery routes, much like the uh, TET or the um, ACTs over there. I'm on one called the Mid-Atlantic Backcountry Discovery Route, and I'm on Section 3, so I'd say it's a little under halfway through it. It's about five miles from my house or so, and the riding here is wonderful. We've got great mountain roads. I'm I'm about 10 miles from the West Virginia border. We have uh, tons of, of just public lands all around me with uh, roads that are through them. Some of them are gated part of the year. Some of them are open all year round, but uh, it's just great riding everywhere around here. If you want to do off-road, there's plenty of that. Street riding... Plenty of curvy mountain roads, we've got elevations from all the way up to 5,000 feet, dirt riding. We've got several national forests between uh, Virginia and West Virginia all around me with lots of forest service roads and everything from gravel to dirt to single track whatever kind of riding you want to do it's it's quite quite nice all all out my back door basically
0: and it's all legal legal to do is it because we're quite restricted as to what we can ride in the UK
1: yeah it's all legal here that's uh as long in fact the forest service roads even though they're the dirt roads you have to have a plated bike to ride on them because they're considered public roads so i can't think of the only time it's illegal, certain roads will have a gate across them, which the Forest Service ter- closes during certain times of the year. They'll open it and close it. I don't know if that's for preservation, or or I know they open a lot of them during hunting season. Of course, then you got to be careful you don't get shot back there. But uh, <laughs> hopefully, they hear you coming. Do you always ride with spark arresters Then I should say yes, but the answer <laughs> is no. <laughs> but is that
2: is that a legal thing? I've only, only asked this because I I once bought an MFF M F M F. MF type. yeah, for my XR650L, and it came with a spark arrestor, and I thought, what's this? And it seemed to be more of an American thing than it was certainly a European thing in terms of war, I thought.
1: It is required, I believe, in the national forests. I can't say all my bikes have one, and I've the, the rangers are very few and far between, so the chances of you getting actually checked. I think it's probably more important in the West where you have a lot yeah. more danger of forest fires. Out here, we don't really... I can't think of the last time there was an actual forest fire anywhere even near me. I mean, we just don't get that kind of dryness like you do out west.
2: So did you say there's no stop lights or stop signs?
1: No stop lights in the whole county.
2: You've no stop lights. <laughs> you've got endless trails. You've got no law enforcement. Yes. This sounds incredible. It really is, does doesn't sound, does not it?
1: Yeah. Amazing. So did you grow
0: up in this state?
1: Uh, no, I've been here for since 99, but I grew up in Southern California.
0: Tell us a little about your riding history. When did you start riding? Did you have a, a, a parent that rode? Did you race as a kid, or how did you get into it?
1: My dad had ridden motorcycles, but he wasn't like an active motorcycle rider when I was growing up. I got into it mostly because uh, other kids uh, that I knew, friends from school and stuff, were into dirt bike riding, and I would see that and think, like, I want to do that, and so Finally, uh, I think we went out and bought an old used, I believe it was a Honda 80 or something like that when I was probably, I don't know, 10 or 11, maybe fixed it up. I think it needed some work. I don't even think it was a straight dirt bike. I think it was like a, it was probably some sort of enduro bike. And, and I used to ride it around. We lived on a cul-de-sac. So I used to ride around the cul-de-sac in it learning. And I'd go out with my friends. We'd put put it on a trailer and put all their bikes on trailers. And we lived about two and a half, two hours from the uh, desert. So we'd go out to some of the public deserts like Anza Borrego or uh, Salton Sea were popular areas where there's just lots of off-road riding and we'd ride out there and I'd ride with my friends. And I think I did that all the way through, uh, through high school. I had that bike. I think it was that same bike. I might, maybe I got a bigger bike at some point. I just don't remember, but um, cause that bike, that bike actually was, it must've been an Enduro cause I remember it was street legal and played it. So when I was old enough To get my motorcycle license i got my motorcycle license and then treated riding a bicycle to school for riding a motorcycle to school i continued that through high school and uh then i think i discontinued in college once i got into more into cars and like a lot of people have there was that midlife stretch where i didn't ride from for about 12 or 13 years from uh, the time i entered college till i was in my early 30s
0: you mentioned there just really piqued my interest you you said there was a public desert we didn't have those in the uk (laughs) Yeah. What's a public uh, desert? <laughs> uh,
1: it's just, it's public land. It's in the desert. Yeah, it's just public land, like uh, Bureau of Land Management land or, or maybe uh, Forest Service land or something like that. But uh, it's just open to anybody to use. And, and most of the time, it's all users.
0: So you can, you can just take a 4x4 four four or a motorbike and pretty much just go anywhere you want?
1: Pretty much. There's one area called Glamis that is these huge sand dunes reminiscent of something you'd find down in Africa. And uh, people take, you know, old modified Volkswagen bugs or special dune buggies, and they go out there and they they go up the huge dunes. I remember my friends had what we, what we called a rail because it was just basically big metal tubing with a old VW engine in the back of it, and it held four people. And I remember going up some hellaciously, scarily, steep hills in that thing and just thinking— Oh, geez, we're going to tip over backwards. Oh, shit.
0: We're living in the wrong country now. We really
2: are. Do you look back on that time, Brett, of riding that little 80cc bike around as a kid as like the best biking of your life? Because I think back to my sort of childhood riding. I feel like I've spent a lifetime trying to recreate that feeling I had as a tiny kid razzing around on a little bike.
1: Yeah, I mean, I loved it. I I think I always felt a little intimidated by the other kids because I had started – for that area of the world where people do a lot of dirt biking i'd kind of started late at 10 or 11 and most of them had probably started riding when they were five or six on you know on a 50 or whatever i would have trouble keeping up with them because they were more advanced than me and they been riding longer so i remember at times trying to you know i'd be they'd all be going up a big hill and i'd be a little tentative and i'd stall out halfway up the hill and have to you know go back down and yeah, they wouldn't notice that I was gone. They'd be all way up ahead somewhere and I'd be struggling. But uh yeah, it was fun. I remember it was some of the, some of the best riding I'd done. And, and back then you don't have as much fear as you do when you get older.
2: I mean, this riding as a kid and learning at that age, this really must have helped you. Like it helped me with my riding later on in my life. It's a really good foundation, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah. yeah. I think I think dirt bike riding is such a good foundation for any kind of riding. I it's it just it sets you up with skills that you don't that you don't get if you've only ridden on pavement.
2: So when you came back to biking later on, what was the reason for that and what did you go for?
1: I went right into adventure riding. I think, you know, I've never done the Harley cruiser thing, even though that's, I'd say that's probably 90% of the riders in the U.S. or the bikes, I should say, are are Harleys. I think I read once where it was about 90%. It might be a little less now as adventure bikes are Mm -hmm. becoming more popular. But you still even now when i go out riding i don't i don't see many adventure bikes so yeah when i came back in i had I, I, a friend of mine that i'd known and ridden dirt bikes with as a kid we were talking one day we we were still friends and he said yeah have you seen these bmw they're like big enduro bikes he was talking about the gs of course i i no i hadn't seen it so i looked it up and i thought wow that's that's a cool bike i want one of those so i went right to an 1150 gs and, and bought the Bought a big Bumblebee Yellow GS, and uh, I think my motorcycle license had expired or I had never, when I moved to Virginia, I hadn't had it transferred or something like that. So I had to go out and do the uh, course again, but it's so easy. I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody in the U.S. about our courses, but they're ridiculous compared to what yours are. Yours actually (laughs) trained people to ride a bike safely ours train you to ride a motorcycle in a uh, in a parking lot
2: you just have to point at a motorcycle
1: <laughs> yeah you have to ride through some cones you have to stop before some line you have to be able to ride slowly but they never at any point take you out on a street and actually make you ride in traffic and I hadn't done that in quite a while so that was it was kind of it was a little like doing it all over again and this was a much bigger bike than I had ridden you know I hadn't ridden anything bigger than probably 125 since I was had stopped riding, so all of a sudden going to 1150 was a bit intimidating, but I took some rider courses. Do they have the Motorcycle Safety Foundation over there? Yeah,
0: there's a couple of things that are quite similar. We have the Institute of Advanced Motorists that do advanced t- safety training, and there's a couple of others as well here. And yeah, very good. I did the IAM one and thoroughly enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. I haven't crashed yet anyway.
1: They have the Motorcycle Safety Foundation here, and... They do both a beginner course where you just get your license. And since I I went out and just got my license on my own, I, since I had experience already. And then they had the uh, experience rider course, which I went out and did, which was a bit more in-depth, you know, emergency braking, emergency cornering, braking in a corner, things like that. Uh, and, uh, and then I did a BMW uh, cor- off-road course on a GS. So that really helped handling the big bike.
2: Did you have plans for a big trip then when you bought this bike?
1: I didn't have any plans what to do. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I just liked the look of the bike. I've always liked, uh, off-road things. And I thought, well, this will be fun. And I, I just started out riding locally and you know, like everybody who's a new rider, even though I wasn't brand new, I, I just started locally and then gradually branched out a little further and further from home. I think my first long rides were down to see my dad who lived in Georgia. That was about 800 miles away. And Mostly I just did roads then and and I was really tentative about doing off-road on that big bike initially but I got more and more comfortable with it and then I ended up doing some rides across the country and back out to California and back and the airline I work for has its training center in Denver so I've ridden out to Denver probably five or six times when I did when I had like a month-long training to transition to a new airplane I would ride out to Denver, and then just have my motorcycle. I'd always schedule it for the summer and go out there and ride the mountains, and I'd have my motorcycle for with me on my days off. That was great.
2: Now, Brett, you're a pilot. Yes. I'm just wondering, I have a question, but I'm not sure how, what the question is. But it's something <laughs> like, if you were to compare flying a large airliner and riding a motorcycle, which is kind of the scariest to you, or which do you see as the most, the riskiest? Uh,
1: I wouldn't say either is scary to me, but the riskiest one is definitely right. You're probably not
0: roads. doing I, it right then. <laughs> you yeah. If you're not crashing, you're, you're, yeah. you're, not, trying
2: you're not trying hard enough. Trying hard enough. Yeah. No.
1: Uh, the riskiest is definitely the bike on uh, in traffic, off road. I don't worry about it too much. Where I get scared is sometimes. Yeah, I get myself in situations off road where I think, Oh man, I, I'm I, I'm up here on top of this hill, and I got to go down that hill, and uh, yeah, that's really steep.
2: And pilots, like you're an airline pilot, is that right? Yes.
1: So, yeah. So being an airline pilot,
2: it's not like being an actor. They don't kind of say you can't do any risky things like ride big motorcycles.
1: No. 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 Okay. They don't tell me what all I can right. do on my <laughs> all
0: time at all. I'm guessing though, with a motorbike you've got one pillion. With a seven three seven, you've got three or four hundred pillions, haven't you? Which <laughs> creates its own safety issues.
1: <laughs> well, it can, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's plenty of uh, issues to go around when you when passengers sometimes.
0: I guess part of your job when you're doing a lot of travelling, you've you you've got to do quite a few trips abroad as well, haven't you?
1: Yeah, in fact, that's what I've done for the last 20 years predominantly, is just flying abroad over to over to the UK, over to Europe mostly. I've probably been to London a couple hundred times now.
0: You quite often fly into somewhere, and you'll, if you've got some time, you'll hire a bike and travel around a bit.
1: I've done that a few times. I wouldn't say quite often, but I, I have done it a few times. The most memorable time was in porto portugal i rented a gs and uh went and rode the duro river valley which if you haven't done it is just beautiful yeah. and uh then when i the memorable part of that was not so much as, as much as i like the duro river valley the memorable part was when i brought it back and i went to fill it up i put diesel in it on accident
0: oh don't sounds expensive
1: yeah it, it was it cost me about 300 uh 300 euros
0: was that just
2: as because foreign fuel stations can be very confusing can't they
1: yeah, it was okay. just confusion. I think it was confusion and tiredness because we only had about a twenty-four hour layover. So we got in that morning, and I had my riding gear with me. I went straight to the hotel, changed my riding gear, went straight down to the rental place, picked up the bike, and so by then, you know, it's probably five, six in the evening when I'm bringing the bike back to to return it. And I, you know, I'm just exhausted because I had flown all night. On top of that, I don't speak Portuguese, and and I remember in Portuguese. Gasoline, now that I know this, gasoline is gasolina, but (laughs) diesel also looks a little like gasoline. It's gasolio. They both start with gas. Exactly. And the the colors of the the pump handles were different than they are in the U.S. In fact, they were actually reversed. In the U.S., diesel is always green, a green-handled pump, and regular gasoline is always black. Well, there it was the exact opposite. So I, I remember looking at them and thinking, well, that says gasolio and that says Catalina, <laughs> and that one says something simple, and you no, know, that can't. And so I just, I just picked the gasolio because it was the black, <laughs> the, uh, the black
2: candle. So was it and, the smell? Was it the smell that got you, or did you feel something no, like right it wasn't up?
1: even. I didn't even smell it. Like normally, you would think you would smell diesel, and I don't. I didn't. I didn't smell anything odd. I just put it yeah. in, and I didn't. It didn't smell odd to me. I mean, I didn't put it up to my nose, but. Um, yeah it wasn't it wasn't until i filled it up and was was about a half mile down the road and it was oh. pinging and jerking and everything and i just thought oh that's i think i did something bad uh when i got back to uh the rental place i told the guy i, I think i might have put diesel in it because it's not <laughs> running so good and he looks at me he goes oh you are uh, the third american that uh, has done this. <laughs> I said, "Well." Us Americans keep doing that. Maybe you should tell us beforehand to <laughs> put gazoli, gasolina yeah. in and not gasolio, so that we know, because clearly it's the same mistake we're all making. What's in the garage now? So in the garage now is a the Touring, the 2022 Aprilia Egg 660. I've got a 1200 GS 2018 Rally version, and I've got an AJP PR7. And then next to all of them, dwarfing all of them, is a, uh, a Swiss Army gower
2: Well, I really want to talk to you about that, but I don't know if we're on the right podcast. But man, <laughs> I, know, we need
1: different- I think we should. It's an off-road
0: vehicle. It looks great. Tell people what it is, Brett.
1: So it's a nine, it's 50 years old, 1973, <laughs> uh, Swiss Army. Uh, it was originally made in Austria, and it's, it did service as a radio operator's van in uh, the Swiss Army for I don't know how many years. Um and then I, someone brought it over to the States at some point, and then someone took it to Canada at some point. And I bought it from the guy in Canada who had fully restored it and, and really uh, pimped it out and made it uh, a pretty nice uh, kind of almost like an expedition vehicle.
2: What engine does it have in it?
1: Oh, oh, that's incredible. It's a whole 89 horsepower air cooled four cylinder engine. <laughs> that's that's geared very very low so you can pretty much go up anything but you're not going to go anywhere fast
0: four-wheel drive as well presumably
1: all four-wheel drive it's got hydraulic lockers so you can hydraulically put it in four-wheel drive you've got three levers in the cockpit you can put it in four-wheel drive you can put it in uh, and then you can lock the front and rear uh differential as well
2: it's a beautiful piece of machinery, isn't it?
1: 1973. Incredible. Yeah.
2: It looks like, I mean, I would urge anyone to head over to your Instagram account have a look at it, but it looks a little bit like the Land Rover 101, doesn't it? Are you familiar with I've, that vehicle?
1: I've no, no, I've never seen that.
2: Well, yeah, Land Rover made a similar looking thing, but okay. this looks really, it looks in great condition. So yeah, it's all been done up.
1: Yeah, it's actually yeah. Uh, probably one of the nicer pin scours around. There's there's quite a few of them around, but most of them have been beat to hell. People use them for off roading, and they haven't been uh, they've been bashed around quite a bit. So this one's actually quite nice.
2: And you give yours a nice life. You don't do anything crazy with no. it. No.
1: Yeah, I, I I've never been into the four wheeling. I bought that because it looked cool. And I like the way it looked, but uh, and it's fun to drive around. But uh, no, I'm I'm not into four wheeling. I'd much rather ride a, a motorcycle off road than. Drive a truck off road. It's yeah. just so slow when you're four wheeling, and then you gotta have. It's kind of scary. I get more scared in a car off road than I do in a on a motorcycle because yeah. you're so close to the edge. On a motorcycle, you can get away from the the edge of a steep drop up drop off.
2: I got a huge shock the first time I went in a Land Rover up a track at just how bumpy it was. Just getting yeah. thrown around on a bench seat. I couldn't yeah, couldn't believe it. I don't know why. I just thought these things would be quite comfortable. I didn't realize it's just a day of discomfort.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very and, uncomfortable. And I felt it's slow. Uh,
2: yeah, and I've had a Land Rover and I've taken it down tracks, but I just find it incredible get incredibly anxious because it's such a big thing. I've seen too many yeah. videos of vehicles rolling unexpectedly, yeah. and things like that.
1: Yeah, at least if you roll uh, if you go down the bank on a motorcycle, you can separate mm. yourself from the vehicle pretty quick, but <laughs> In a car, you're along for the ride.
0: (laughs) Tell us about the Touareg, because it's quite a new bike, isn't it? And It's new over here, and our friend Alex seems to think that he's going to get himself one, and they do seem to be gaining a bit of momentum in the UK. Are you you enjoying it?
1: I love it. It's my favourite bike now. I bought it initially because I wanted something lighter than than the GS to take down through Central America.
0: The Pinsgau is probably lighter than the GS.
1: Well, that that may be true. (laughs) Uh, The Touareg has become my favourite bike because it's so good... Is an all-rounder. I mean, people always say the GS is good as an all-rounder. Well, the well, now I say the <laughs> Touareg is much better all, as an all-rounder than the GS because it does off-road so much better than the GS. We've all seen people doing crazy things on the GS and they do them well, but for the average rider like myself i'm not going to take it on some of the crazy things that i see you know some of these professionals doing on it the tour rig makes that much more accessible i've taken the tour rig on things that uh behind a guy on a um a a a a 600 you know riding behind a guy on a 600 dirt bike and and i was keeping up with him on the tour rig and and i was not expecting that hard of a trail when i when i asked him I, i was thinking what are we going on? I said, Oh yeah, it's pretty easy. We'll go on it. It was a, it was a much harder trail than I thought it would be. And on road, it's, it's almost as good as the GS. It doesn't have quite the power. So if you're riding two up, you're not going to pass people as quick or anything, but it's got just about as, in fact, I put a little, um, uh, windscreen deflector on top of it. And so now it's tall, the windscreen's tall enough and it's comfortable. I've ridden, you know, 500 miles in a day Mm -hmm. on it, on the highway and have no problem.
0: We discovering any reliability issues, any issues with them yet?
1: I have not had any problems. Um, I've seen people online on some of the tour groups that are having problems, but I tend to think that the people you see that are having the problems are the small minority because most of the people that have no problems don't say anything. Problems I've seen is a few people uh, with some oil weeping from some little drain hole somewhere. Like I said, I've had zero problems. I had a slight oil seepage from the oil pan, maybe. 3,000, 2,000 miles in and I just tightened up the sump bolts a little bit, just gave them a half turn each and that was all it needed and not a problem since. 8,000 miles on it.
2: I'm just looking at pictures of it because this isn't a bike I'm massively familiar with. Well, it's quite new, isn't it? Yeah, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Gorgeous. Is yours the blue one?
1: Mine's the blue one, yeah.
2: Blue and white, best colours, yeah.
1: Fastest (laughs) colours.
0: The main reason you came onto the podcast, Brett, was to talk about The Last Big Ride. Do you want to sort of tell people what The Last Big Ride is and, and probably more importantly, why you're doing it?
1: So I came up with the name because I was, um, as you guys know, I was diagnosed with a terminal disease called pulmonary fibrosis. It's a lung disease. It's irreversible and incurable. So eventually you either have to have a lung transplant or you die. It's pretty much got a one. It's not like with and I'm not belittling cancer at all when people have it, that's serious too, but you can go into rem- you can get treatment and go into remission for cancer and survive it and continue on with your life. In fact, I did. I had cancer when I was 13 and did all the chemo and everything, and I'm still here. But with pulmonary fibrosis, there is no cure. You're never going to go into remission. The best you can hope is that it will last you a while, that everybody's different. So I had no idea how long That uh, I would last. They say the average is two to five years after diagnosis, but some people only last a year and some people last 15 years. It's really highly individual. So I came up with that. I, I knew that I wanted to do riding. I mean, I love riding and I had some bucket list things. I wanted to see as much of the world as possible. The biggest one I wanted to do was from my home in Virginia down to the tip of South America, Ushuaia. But I also wanted to ride more in Europe. I mentioned that I had had a FGR 1300 that I bought in Ireland and I wanted to see even though I've been to Europe quite a bit I want to see more of it from the seat of a motorcycle so I went over last summer in 2022 on the FJR and took it took it through I think 13 different countries in western Europe it was about a month and a half ended up in Edinburgh and while I was on that ride, I came up with the idea of calling it for Instagram the last big ride. I really do believe it probably is going to be the last time I do a a big ride like that in South America. I just, I knew that my physical capability, especially of handling a bike off-road, was going to eventually decline. And so I wanted to do this stuff while I was still physically capable of doing it. And, and in fact, it did decline. And then while I was while I was doing that, I came up with the idea of doing a fundraiser for it. So initially I was going to do a, start my own nonprofit and do it. And well, that's that's a lot of paperwork and a lot of taxes and a lot, a lot of things you got to deal with mostly for the uh, re- internal revenue service. So I decided instead of doing it that way, I would link up with a nonprofit called the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. They fund research as well as awareness for the disease I have. I started an Instagram account, The Last Big Ride as well as a webpage, lastbigride.org, where people can go and then there's a link that they can donate and that takes them straight to the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. And as of today's date, I think I've got about $18,000 that I, that people have donated. And uh, so getting closer, my goal was originally $25,000 and uh, I still want to hope to make that goal at some point.
0: So if the 1,000 people that listen to this in the next week all donated oh, $6 each, that's about what, five quid? we'd hit your target, wouldn't we? Let's do it. Yeah,
1: that would be great.
0: Come on, everybody. We'll do it. We'll donate this month's Patreon money, which is the equivalent of 10 people. <laughs> <laughs> That's how many patrons we've got. We'll so that that would be awesome. So what's that website again? LastBigRide.org. How long have you had it for and what are the, the effects on you now?
1: Initially, I came down with what they thought was pneumonia in uh, August of 2021. In fact, it was when I was riding the uh, the... Irish ride on the FJR going around the island with my wife. I got not terribly sick then, but when I came back, I went and saw a doctor. I was just having some coughing and stuff. And they initially thought I just had walking pneumonia gave me some antibiotics. Didn't help. Went back about two weeks later, they gave me some stronger antibiotics, still didn't help. At some point, I just got worse and worse or I was having trouble breathing to the point where I remember walking up a jet bridge, finishing a flight, and pulling my bags up the jet bridge and being so short of breath, I had to stop and sit down in a chair in the top, which is very unusual for me because I was always a runner. I'd run three or four day, miles a day, and it would lift weights and everything. I was pretty fit, so I realized it wasn't pneumonia, and I was it wasn't getting out of shape. It was something else. So I went back to uh, my uh, normal doctor. I'd seen a different doctor those first two times, and uh, he took a chest X-ray and he sent me immediately. He said, "I've never seen a chest X-ray that looks that bad." go into the emergency room, and I ended up being in the hospital for five days recovering. They still thought it was something. It was basically an autoimmune disease called uh, eosinophilic pneumonia. Eosinophils are white blood cells that, uh, and, and in my case, for some reason, they were attacking my lungs. They didn't know why, but they now saw my lungs as a foreign substance to be attacked. They put me on high doses of prednisone, which is an anti-inflammatory, and uh, that helped over a couple over a couple months. I got better and was able to go back to work and go back to riding and stuff. But I hit a plateau. Didn't get any better for a long time. Went out to uh, the Mayo Clinic here in, uh, which is a top pulmonary hospital, top everything hospital here in Minnesota, and they diagnosed me in April with what's called pulmonary fibrosis, which is just another way of saying your lungs are scarring. And when your lungs scar, all those little air sacs in your lungs, the alveoli become brittle and they can't deliver the air anymore. When that happened, uh, yeah, I, I, I knew after doing some research that it was going to be terminal, And but not knowing how long I had, I wanted to do the rides. And where I am now is I'm down to about uh, less than 50% total lung function or volume. My body, my lungs can only transfer about 33% of a normal person's lung lungs can of oxygen to my bloodstream
0: that must have been a hell of a hell of a thing to be told and i'm i'm intrigued to know because i guess what i went through recently i did i had a bit of a i decided i i decided personally that i had cancer and that was it i was going to die and this was over a period of about 10 days and i think the the interesting effect that it had on me is it really made me think about what actually was important to me right and I'm guessing you went through a sort of a similar sort of thing Did
1: You do tend to go through a, a, a self evaluation of what's important. And of course, you know, family is, and friends are important. You want to spend time with them. But there's also things you want to achieve in your life. You know, there's things that and for me, it was I really had always wanted to ride probably for 15, 20 years to the tip of South America. And I I knew I wanted to do that. And I talked to my wife about it. And I said, hey if I did this, do you want to come with? And she said, hell no. (laughs) So she said, who's going to watch the dog? I said, oh, she didn't want to come. She didn't want to sit on it. She did uh, Nova Scotia with me a few years back, about 3,000 miles and uh, maybe 3,600 miles. And she said that was enough for her. So uh,
2: Did she go on the Europe trip with you then or was that by yourself?
1: She did Ireland with me around the island for 10 days, but she did not do the European trip
2: so did you go from ireland down to spain i saw the map of it but i couldn't work out which direction you had gone in
1: so i went down uh you can pick up a ferry out of uh just south of dublin and go to to, uh, bilbao took the bike to bilbao rode the northern coast of spain down then the uh, coast of portugal down to lisbon where i actually left the bike the bike was in lisbon when i started the big trip uh i left it stored in uh in lisbon for about three or four months or so. Then picked it up in, I believe it was July and rode 12 or 13 different countries.
2: That looked like a huge trip, but we could do a separate podcast probably on that trip, but it ended, just tell us how it ended.
1: It ended, that part of the trip ended fine because I stopped in Edinburgh where I had friends of friends who I met up with and I I stored it with one of them. Then two weeks later, we were gonna come back. I was gonna bring my wife, so I went home. I had some doctor's appointments I had to attend to. Went home for two weeks. My wife was going to come back and we were going to do two weeks of the Scottish Highlands, which we were both really looking forward to. We get to Edinburgh, pick up the bike, go to our hotel, check into our hotel, go meet one of these friends for dinner and drinks that night. Ironically, we were even joking about whether or not we'd get back and the bike would be gone, thinking, of course, that that was not even a possibility. And he even said, well, it's in a well-lit area. You'll be, it's locked up. You'll be fine. Well, we got back and I my wife said let's go check on we we named the bike Fiona because it's Irish and it's red so we I called it Fiona <laughs> my red headed at last so um we go to check on it, it's gone oh. and i thought holy shit a- at first i thought are, are we looking in the right place are we i've never had a bike stolen before i just it's one of those things where your heart just sinks and you you think you're just you must be mistaken. You must have left it somewhere else and you're in the wrong area. <laughs> and no, and my wife says, no, this is where you left it. And like, I said, you gotta be, excuse my French, you gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> I, we've been here one day and the bike is gone. I was just astounded because we had, it was a well-lit area. It was a fairly well-trafficked area. And we had the bike with a big, huge kryptonite cable lock around a, a light post oh god I, really thought, I just thought you know anybody who nicks a bike is just going to be a crime of opportunity so if, if you make it hard they're not going to bother with it they'll go on to one that's easy but i guess these little bastards an air angle that's oh,
2: terrible around terrible
0: we've just had a, a friend of ours has just had his garage broken into him both of his bikes taken and bizarrely two days before that we were talking on a chat group we were saying we should do a podcast on motorbike security because there's, there's a company called light lock who we're going to talk to in a few weeks time and they, they do this lock that's covered in this ceramic called baronium which basically you can still cut through it with an angle grinder but it takes four discs to cut through uh, so you kind of think well that you know it's going to and, and if you've got it round a, a wheel they've got to cut two, two cuts in yeah. it so it's going to take them at least eight minutes to cut through it and you think well these people are so brazen that they, just, yeah. they don't seem to care and and if they, they do care. get caught they get weapons out and scare people off it's it's an absolute plague in the UK at the moment
1: these bastards they didn't even want it i thought well they'll, they're taking it cuz they're going to resell it or something no they just took it for a joyride
0: did you get it back then
1: i got it back but it was wrecked the body panels all need to be replaced the battery is missing they ripped it out so they just absolutely instead of opening that body panel they just ripped it apart the uh cylinder for the key of course was wired so that needs to be replaced one of my friends over in edinburgh works for the BMW dealer there, he picked it up for me. And of course, the police, to add insult to injury, they write me a nice, really endearing, nice letter telling me that they've got my bike and I owe them 200 pounds for the, uh,
0: Jesus. <laughs> for the oh, Recovery.
1: If I fail to pick it up, that the they'll take legal action against me. To oh,
0: Christ.
1: So that's a real nice way to treat a yeah. victim of a crime. Anyhow, my friend goes and picks it up and I paid the police the, uh, the money, the impound lot the money and... It's sitting right now at uh, the BMW dealer up in Edinburgh, and we're trying to figure out whether I'm going to actually fix, whether to put the money into the bike and fix it up, or whether just to junk it and sell it for the parts or something. I still haven't decided, and and part of this disease, part of the reason I haven't decided is because I'm just not sure where I'm going to be with this disease or anything, and whether it's worth going over there and putting the time and money into that bike. So you you didn't actually get to do the West Coast no i i really wanted to and the biker community up there was wonderful i mean people reached out to me i put it i put something about it on instagram and then it actually got picked up by a little local uh online news story a uh, news newsletter up there and um people reached out some people even offered to uh to loan me their their bikes to or loan me their bike to go do it anyhow wow well and you become attached to things like fiona was just one of those bikes i'd become attached to she was a 20 year old FTR, you know, 1300. And it had just been a dead solid, reliable bike. I bought it with only about 15,000 miles on it, even though it was that old and it had been well taken care of and garaged. And it took me all through Europe. And I think it was, it was that first big trip after I'd been diagnosed. So I kind of had a, 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 an emotional attachment to it. Mm -hmm. I remember I was, I was just so just ripped up that it had been stolen. And, and, at that point it hadn't been recovered yet i don't think my heart i just didn't feel like continuing on so my wife and i just the day after it got stolen just got on a plane and went home
0: devastating oh she had not asked you now that's a terrible story <laughs>
1: <laughs> No, I <it's> a- <laughs> light-hearted
0: <laughs> if, if you do make it back though you can borrow one on a knoll's bike absolutely
2: okay. you can brett yeah and i know i normally that. say no to that but definitely <laughs> well can, can i say but the trip you enjoyed the trip it must have been amazing riding through europe up until in, that in point. The summer
1: yeah it was amazing i think and i visited some places you know like i said it's, it's a pilot i've been up to a lot of europe even on my vacations i've rented cars and driven through a lot of europe but i saw even through the with the bike i saw so many things that i had never seen my, my favorite was of course as i think with any biker would be was just the the alpine passes i loved going the the stelvio the Furka pass the the saint goddards the the dull i never know whether it's dolomites or dolomiti mountains
0: dolomites uh, well we say dolomites anyway
1: it was just incredible just the riding and and I didn't seem too much that spain and france were embroiled in that heat wave that you had last summer and that was okay that was horrible but the rest (laughs) of it once i got up to higher elevations was quite nice and uh i went to slovenia i'd never been to slovenia before that was pretty cool and just staying in the little pensions everywhere and riding a motorcycle and being on your own bike in europe is yeah it was incredible i just had a blast
2: and this is sleeping in proper beds i imagine
1: yeah i'm not not, not much of a camper
2: no 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 great (laughs) (laughs)
1: So, uh, yeah, just just sleeping in hotels and pensions and things like that and going out and having a few beers at night and enjoying myself and just seeing seeing everything. I took the Channel train over once I got to Belgium and uh, took the train over to the UK and then rode up through the UK.
0: So easy.
1: Yeah, it really was. It was. I don't know why anybody does ferries anymore.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're coming to that conclusion.
1: Back to the last
0: big ride then. So tell us about what you had planned.
1: So the original plan was to ride from my home in Virginia down through Central America, of course ship the bike across the Darien Gap, and then continue on down the west coast of South America all the way to Ushuaia, the southernmost city in the world in Argentina. And I was planning to take about, so I left in October, late October, planned to be there by the end of March to Ushuaia. So and that was probably going to be about I'd say probably 12, maybe 15,000 miles in, uh, in that amount of time, so in about four to five months. And uh, the reality ended up being a little bit different because I did not make it to South America due to worsening health conditions, but I did make it all the way to Panama, so I made it 6,000 miles and through all the countries in Central America.
0: So was that in in one go, or were you, I think I seem to see you were stopping and having to fly home and, and things like that?
1: So mostly it was one go. I I made it all the way to Costa Rica, which is just before Panama. And that was about a month and a half on the road from where I left my home. My wife flew in once in Austin just before I left the States and met me there. And we stayed there for a couple of days. And then she flew again to uh, San Jose, Costa Rica to meet me because I needed to fly home from Costa Rica because I had some important doctor's appointments I couldn't miss. And then I flew back down and continued on to Panama. And the, the idea was to fly home for the holidays then that it was right just before Christmas, and have the bike shipped to Peru, but that never ended up happening. And the logistics of the trip were a little bit difficult in that I had already declined enough my my lungs and that I couldn't do high elevations, whereas I'd had no, no real problems going over all the passes in Europe. I, that was still fairly early on in my disease, and nobody had really expected me to decline as fast as I have. But the 10,000 foot, 9,000 foot passes didn't really present a problem for me, but once I got to Central America, I was finding in Mexico, even being at 7,000 feet, I was having some problems breathing, and so I decided to route myself along the coasts and not do the higher elevations, which made my decision for the pan- the Darien Gap. Most most bike, most riders will ship their bike to Colombia and then ride from there, but Colombia and Ecuador both have some very, very high elevations, and we're not just talking a pass that you go over and back down in a couple of hours. We're talking days, if not weeks, at 10,000 feet, 12,000 feet elevations that I knew I just wouldn't be able to, uh, honestly, to really survive that. My oxygen blood saturation would have been too low, and you risk organ damage and even um, heart attacks when it gets too low. I plan to ship to Peru which was close to sea level if you go to um, Lima, and then mostly right down the coast. There was a few areas where I might have to go to some higher elevations, but just for a very, very short while, so I figured I could tolerate it. And then the other logistical challenge, of course, was the doctor's appointments, having to fly home for those occasionally and and carrying all the, I could take about 15 different pills a day now, and um, having to carry enough pills to last me was going to take up half of one of my panniers. So that was another thing that I had to fly home to renew uh, because I, you just can't carry that many pills at once.
0: That could have been fun crossing the Colombian border with that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking, Brett, you know, dealing with your disease, that's, it's a real mental challenge on a day-to-day basis, I imagine. And I just wonder whether riding a bike, whether you were able to put it out of your mind at all as you were riding, Did it? did it help? Uh,
1: absolutely. As you guys, as anybody listening who knows, you know, riding a bike can be like therapy and Riding is a lot like flying in that when you're doing it, when you're not on autopilot on the plane, when you're actually physically flying the plane, you've you've got 100% of your concentration on it. It's the same with riding. Putting all my concentration, and especially riding in Central America, I'm, oh my God, <laughs> you really have to concentrate because there are animals, people crossing the road in places that you wouldn't think anybody would be crossing the road. You're just riding along in the middle of nowhere and some guy will come out of the trees on the side and just cross the road and you're thinking where did he come from and where's he going to and uh tons of stray animals all over and as well as uh, farm animals uh, alongside the road and you're watching for those there's potholes there's there's semi trucks big you know big lorries coming the other way around blind curves because they get impatient to pass and they're the biggest vehicle so they don't really care who they smash so you have to concentrate and, and that really allowed me to put that daily routine of just right packing up, riding. I like the routine. I like that being on the road. And so for me, that kind of everything else kind of vanishes for a while. Yeah.
2: Did you have, a, have you had any dicey moments on these big trips?
1: No, not, no. nothing especially big. Uh I, I don't remember any dicey moments in Europe that I can recall, but in Central America, there's a few times where you're coming up or down a mountain and you'll be riding in your own lane. And there's, a car or a or a big huge truck coming the other way in your lane trying to pass another vehicle on a on a blind curve and so i just learned to ride really close to the shoulder so i could always dodge into the shoulder but i don't know on on a bike you feel like you usually have plenty of time like in a car you'd probably panic and freak out but on a bike i always feel like well i can squeeze through if i have to i I never felt like it like like whoa i just missed dying but, yeah, there were definitely times where you're just, you know, like, what the hell is this person doing?
2: You see, you sound like me. You never fall off. I thought I was a complete aberration, but it turns out there's two of us.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah.
2: Well, that's also not true,
0: Noel.
1: The, the only the only fall I had was at a gas station in Central America. Of course. I thought my kickstand was yeah, down and it wasn't. <laughs> So, so I, I went to lean it on the kickstand and down it went. And and I'm sitting you know, you're trying to hold it and you realize at some point you know, it's not gonna I it's can't a, hold it. It's over too far.
2: Oh, it's a horrible feeling, isn't it? Knowing when to let go.
1: And then embarrassment kicks in, you know, you're yeah. mortally embarrassed because you've just dropped it at a gas station. It wasn't mm. even a very interesting story, and people are all rushing to help you and you're just like embarrassed, you just want to get it up and leave.
0: <laughs> we were in um where were we in spain on some trails and uh the guy in front stopped we weren't expecting to and we had like a four bike up all crashed into each other some bikes coming the other way it's so embarrassing
1: i've done that off road before for sure <laughs> usually it's i'm following too close to someone or mm-hmm. or they're falling too close to me
0: or or the person in front brakes ridiculously yeah it's the person in front you're thinking of brett that's the that's the right answer Slightly off topic. Should Noel watch Easy Rider? Let me I've just give you some context, Brett. You've never watched it either? Hey. Oh,
1: for goodness hey, no. sake. That's the one with Peter Fonda, right?
0: Yeah, Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda, and
2: uh, Jack Nicholson. Thank you. That is, that's exactly the answer I was hoping for. A friend of mine has given me a lot of grief recently and can't believe that I've never seen this film because I have a motorbike. He thinks that the two should go hand in hand. You've got a motorbike, you have to have seen Easy Rider. Of course. No. Oh.
0: And
1: ridiculous. Brett's just Brett's yeah.
0: just told us this. Well, He's but the pair here. of you. I haven't got time for either of you. Not... <laughs> I, I don't
1: I don't know. All I know is it's got Peter Fonda in it and that it's he rides a chopper. And that's yeah. the, probably the that's probably all I can tell you about that motorcycle yeah. about that movie.
2: We're both aware of it, but we know enough about it to know that it's probably not for us.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's very good, but you should watch it. It's got motorbikes in it.
1: Well yeah. now I gotta watch yeah. it. Okay. Thanks. Thanks.
0: Watch it. Everybody should watch it, and then watch Silver Dream Racer afterwards. <laughs> no, don't watch that. That's no, terrible. but you
1: need like to watch Dust to Glory. That's the one you have to watch. Yeah,
0: that is great.
1: That's the best.
2: So I would say the only mo- motorcycle film probably worth watching that isn't, you know, a really proper on any Sunday kind of motorbike film is the remake of Chips.
0: Did you watch that? I don't think
2: I've seen that. That's got to be terrible. That was good because it was filmed in a way that they'd never been able to film motorcycles before. So it was it's. Post uh, drones, so that's and that yes. changed everything when it came to filming bikes. So there's, there's some good bike stuff in there. Simpson, like chips, I don't I think it's called Chips, chips too. I think it's just called Chips.
1: I watched so Chips religiously we, as a kid. Wasn't it, yeah. Wasn't it great? Wasn't it great? Yeah. yeah.
2: I can't ride alongside someone without thinking about the show Chips. You know, riding in that Chip yeah. style. Yeah. To Well, abreast.
1: the highway patrol officers out in California, they all they still do that because I remember that's where I grew up out there, and I remember seeing the Chips all the time, and they would. They would all ride side-by-side side like that out there on their big, uh, they had those big Kawasaki 1000s, I think. Every kid wanted to be one of them. So you have you never,
2: ever ridden a Harley?
1: My dad, for a very short while, had a Sportster 1200. I was already an adult, and he bought this thing because it was cheap. And I rode it around the driveway and didn't like it at all. And that was the only <laughs> time I ever rode one. Wow. And no offense to Harley people out there. I'm sure they're great bikes. Yeah, but
0: all right, seventy percent UK audience. We don't have any Harley listeners. <laughs> you're in, you're in good company. I, uh,
1: <laughs> you know where I saw a lot of Harleys was France.
2: Yeah, and the, the Denmark. They love Harleys. Norway loves Harleys. It's
1: funny. I was surprised to see as many as I did in France, and uh, I didn't really see any down in Central America. Except there's one gentleman, very interesting guy, Canadian, and I was at the border from Mexico to uh, Guatemala. I was sitting on the curb waiting for their computer systems to come up at the uh, the border office. And this guy pulls up in all leathers and everything. And it's, it's like 95 degrees, which is what, I don't know, 20, 30 degrees Celsius or something. And he's in all his leathers and pulls up on this older Harley. I couldn't tell you what the model is because I don't know anything about Harleys. Big cruiser bike. And uh, I started talking to him. He was from Canada. And he goes south every... He's retired. Goes south every every winter get out of the Canadian winters. And he's ridden that thing. He was going to an island called Roatan in Honduras, this trip. He's actually been on that same bike to the tip of South America, which was the trip I was doing at the time. But I mean, props to him. He's ridden that thing all over North America. And I know he's ridden around Europe too. I just didn't catch whether he had actually shipped that particular bike to Europe and ridden it, or maybe, ridden another bike or a rental or something over there but he had ridden all over South uh, Europe as well because we talked for a while it was quite interesting.
0: You haven't got his contact details have you?
1: (laughs) I, I
0: have, uh, I'm a Facebook friend with him. Oh, really? Seriously? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, me
1: Strangely enough, he's got the same last name as me. So we said, no we're way.
0: Cousins. <laughs> it's to be a good guy for the podcast. I was joking, <laughs> but I, I thought you'd be just passing friends. But yeah. I quite like
2: the idea of a Harley, but I think it's a little bit like, I quite like the idea of a cowboy hat and cowboy boots, but you just can't really get away with them in the UK. No. You've got to be. Yeah,
1: I, I could see that.
2: Yeah, you've got to be in your country to get away with it.
1: You do, but the thing is, it's not my style. I think having for me, what I always tell people is I grew up riding dirt bikes. I like sitting straight up and having big, wide handlebars and having my feet underneath me. I just, I can't get with that sitting kind of, you know, laid back like you're in a couch and your arms. (laughs) And the one I really don't understand is the monkey bars where you put your arms above you. That's, again... Had no offense to anybody. <laughs> I'm sure people like that. I'm sure I'll get some hate for that.
0: But we do create a lot of offense on this podcast. You're all right, don't <laughs> worry.
1: Yeah, it's just not my style. Yeah. No. I did see for, for the first time ever a Harley that I really really liked. Though I saw one that I was like, "No, that's cool. I could ride that one." And I couldn't tell you what model it was or anything. I just liked the look of it. He, yeah. It was highly modified.
0: So I've I've heard amazing things about Mexico. In fact, the whole of, of uh, Central America it, it looks and, and sounds amazing to to ride through. What, what was a highlight for you?
1: Honestly, I, I think I liked El Salvador and Nicaragua the best, but Mexico's the largest. It took me 10 days to get through Mexico, which is still no time at all. I mean, I know people have spent months there and you could easily spend months there. I think a, a lot of the highlights of Mexico are in the higher elevations, which I couldn't do. A lot of the A lot of the really beautiful towns and stuff, I just, I couldn't make it up there. So unfortunately, I was stuck along the coast, which in a lot of areas was more industrial and more touristy. So I kind of tended to just cruise on through there. And they're very, very hot along the coast. I really enjoyed Nicaragua. It's the poorest country in Central America. It was like stepping back in time. I mean, all of a sudden there were, instead of mopeds and everything, there were people riding horses and people pulling carriages with, you know, with horses carrying their, you know, their grain to the market or whatever it was just it was a whole different world
2: what kind of mileage were you sort of taking or were you going for big mileages or
1: big mileage is a relative thing in central america <laughs> so for me to bang out 500 miles here in the states is fairly easy you just get on the uh, highway and go in central america the a the speed limits are much much lower they don't have as many like high speed highways mexico had a few toll roads that were high speed but you get off of those and and everything's maybe 45 miles an hour maximum 50 but then you have these like i said you have all these different things crossing and potholes and you have these speed bumps that come out of the middle of nowhere to keep your speed down so you think you're gonna do you know if, if it says it's a 40 mile an hour road and most of us are used to riding 50 10 miles an hour over or something like that well it's not really possible down there so what i found to be possible in the U.S. and to be possible in Central America were two different things. So I, I found myself gradually ratcheting my idea of a, a long day downwards and downwards and downwards till it got to the point where 150 miles was seeming like a long day anymore.
2: I've never come anywhere near to riding even 500 miles in a day. I think probably most we've done, climbs probably about 300 or something, and that seemed like a massive day, didn't it? 350 maybe.
0: They were long days, I remember, we would ride from sort of nine in the morning and, you know, we'd do, th- I think, 13-hour days, which it, in, in a way, it doesn't really matter what the mileage is. It's just spending a long, long time in the saddle and I guess that's the thing. So, yeah, 13-hour days. I think we, we, we were regularly doing 10 hours on the big European trips and 13 hours, which is great because you're there to ride, right? But, yeah, it's- it's nice to have a break every now and again. Yeah,
1: 150 miles in Central America is easily a six or seven hour day.
0: So Brett, was, was your dream to go to Ushuaia, was it always about doing it on your own or or would you ever consider, because obviously the reason you, you've stopped doing it now, we haven't really talked about that, so maybe you should talk about that but would you would you consider doing it if you had some support that would willingly come with you?
1: Uh, I think I would. I'd always just dreamed on, planned on doing it on my own just because I've always been more of a, a solo rider. I don't like holding other people up when there's something I want to stop and take a picture of or stop and look at. And I also don't like being dragged along to see something that I don't want to see (laughs) by other, by someone else. But uh, yeah, definitely nowadays I think the support I could possibly be done, you know, and and certainly I would have not, I've ridden with other people. And if they're friends and stuff like that, it's fine where Mm -hmm. I live in my life as an airline pilot, I tend to be off on the weekdays a lot. Whereas most people only have weekends off, so I just didn't naturally have many people that could ride with me on weekdays. And I would usually, I would work a lot on weekends since my kids are grown and out of the house. I didn't have to be home on weekends anymore. Yeah, Did you want me to talk about why the uh, why the ride didn't continue?
0: Yeah, please do.
1: When I got, I mentioned earlier that I came home for the holidays, came home about December 20th. And part of that was also because it wasn't just the holidays, the bike was going to be shipped to Peru. And in Peru, at that time, they had just had a lot of political and civil unrest due to their president being jailed and uh, a new president taken over and all the indigenous population who were behind the, who had mostly been the ones who had elected the president was jailed, were uh, outraged. They felt like their uh, their voice was being taken away. And so they were blocking roads, blocking motorcyclists and tourists for getting through. I think famously there were about 300 tourists stranded in Machu Picchu at one point. Some of the chat groups that I belong to of motorcyclists were all, there's probably 100 to 150 people on these groups going south, were encountering quite a bit of problems. In fact, one guy had been beaten up pretty good at a uh, at a protest uh, when he was trying to get through a roadblock. So I decided, well, I'll go home for a couple of weeks. For, it's the holidays. That works out fine. And by the time I get back to South America, hopefully the political unrest will be over. Well, when I went home, I must have caught something on the plane or in the airport or at some point along the way, because by the 24th, I found myself in the hospital here in Virginia with what's called para influenza, which is just a respiratory flu. It's really a fairly simple flu. Most people, it wouldn't really cause any problem for. It's mostly elderly or, or very young children. But someone like me who not only do I have this underlying lung disease, but I've got, I'm uh, immunocompromised because the drugs they have me on suppress my immune system to keep it from attacking. It's my own body. So I ended up with very dangerously low oxygen levels because of this flu and stayed in the hospital for a couple of nights. And what that did was it made my um, lung function decline again. I was still hoping to get back and telling myself and telling everybody I was going to get back down to South America. I like to think positive and think I'm going to get past this and it's going to be better. But as the weeks wore on after I got out of the hospital, I just wasn't getting any better. I, I felt like really, really weak to the point where even going out and walking around my house or walking a half mile was very, very difficult for me. I was breathing really hard. Picking up anything, doing any kind of physical effort was very, very difficult for me. And I thought, I can't go back to South America and be in these remote areas where I could have a normal problem you would expect to have when you're adventure riding, like a bike falling over, you know, getting stuck in sand or mud, uh, having a punctured tire or something like that, that are just normal things that you would deal with. But I didn't feel like I could deal with them. I felt like I just didn't have the physical strength to pick up even the tour egg anymore and i felt like well if i can't be self sufficient how am i going to do this trip because i can't be calling in some rescuers because i dropped the bike or because i punctured my tire hey, you know that should only be for if you, if you <laughs> break bones or something like that and you're you're stuck in the middle of nowhere so and on top of that my doctors were pretty concerned with me they said you just can't afford any more respiratory infections they every time you have one it takes you down another notch and it's getting on a plane and being around crowds like that, they were really worried about that. So between those two things, I reluctantly made the decision that maybe it wasn't wise to continue the ride and decided to stop in Panama.
0: So are you still able to get out on your bike at the moment?
1: It took me a good three, four weeks to get over to that flu, to get back to where I was actually feeling better. My breathing is still, my oxygen levels still are not recovered and they probably will never go back to what my baseline was before. But the big difference is I'm local now. I'm within a couple hours of my house when I go out riding by myself. If I have to call in the cavalry, well, the cavalry is my wife. I've got my inReach, and I can just text her. I'm not going to hit that SOS button and notify Carmen I'm in trouble, but I can text my wife from the inReach. There's a lot of areas where I live where there's no cell phone coverage at all, so you, you have to have that satellite communicator. But she's always – I can text her on it. It goes right to her phone and say, hey – bring the pickup and come pick me up because I broke down, you know, or, or I'm stuck in mud, you know, can you come help me And <laughs> And I know she'll get in the truck and come help me out. So it, it's like a big difference. Now I have that, uh, that safety net.
2: So how much of the day are you actually on the oxygen now?
1: So at night I use it all night long.
2: Yeah,
1: And that's mostly to give uh, your, to give my heart a break. Your heart beats. When your oxygen saturation is low, your body knows that. So it tells your heart to beat faster to uh, because that delivers more oxygen to your bloodstream and to your brain and, and all the important organs that need oxygen. So, my heart tends to beat. I used to have a pretty low, you know, high 60s, low 70s heart rate on average. And now it tends to average to like 85. So, the doctors want to just give my heart a break at night by having me on oxygen. It lets my heart slow down and keeps my oxygen up. And then, when I exert myself, if I'm down in my shop working on the motorcycles or even, you know, moving things around, if I'm even something as simple as making the bed, it really, really makes my oxygen saturation go down. So I wear a little portable oxygen concentrator for that. And I actually do bring it with me when I ride now. I, I modified a, uh, a Moscomoto was nice enough to donate a backpack to me. And uh, I modified that a little bit so that th- this thing has to be able to breathe to allow it to breathe better so it wouldn't overheat. And it goes in the backpack and the backpack goes on my back and then the oxygen cannula goes under my helmet If I need it, it's there. I'm finding now I don't need it for just normal riding. If I'm riding on the road or anything, I'm fine. It's like sitting in my couch. I'm I'm fine. I don't have any problems with it. But if I'm off-road riding where I'm standing up, especially since I'm bending slightly at the knees, you know, and keeping that little bit of a crouch, it's a lot of uh, effort on your quadriceps and your glutes, which are your two biggest muscles in the body. And so they suck the oxygen right out of my bloodstream. I tend to start breathing really hard. Even on a really simple off-road, you know, just basically a dirt road, which isn't hard at all, but because I'm standing, in fact, I'm learning to sit more because it's just easier, as much as I don't like doing that, it's not natural to me when I'm off-road to be sitting, I'm learning techniques, but... I'll turn the thing on and use it when I'm when I'm riding off-road because it it just ups my game a little bit. I think uh, it allows me to to ride at a little bit of a higher level by having that oxygen. Now I don't have to worry about it.
0: Well, I'm I'm not a doctor. If Mrs. Anderson is listening to this, I am a doctor, and I, I'm prescribing <laughs> no more bed making. No more chores, <laughs> lots more bike trips.
1: But see, it's the bed making and the chores that make me feel normal. <laughs> but I appreciate it. I appreciate
2: <laughs> it. Well, you going to say, Brett? You know, the picture you're painting, you know, thank goodness you went back to motorcycles. Because I'm just thinking about when you say "I'm going down to the bike, to the, what did you call it, the garage, the the workshop, just to have that garage time, aside from riding bikes, just to have bikes in your life and garage time, it's such a great thing to have whilst you're going through this, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it really yeah. is. And and one of the funny things is that uh, I often, maybe morbidly so, start thinking like, at what point should I start selling off bikes? At what point when I physically decline enough? And then I think, I don't want to sell any of my bikes. I want to keep them till I die. Yeah. But because I I just even like looking at them. I like to go down to the garage and just, you know, oh, this is my kingdom, you know. (laughs) I do
2: this all the time.
0: You're going to need one to ride after the lung transplant anyway. So Yeah, absolutely. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah. I, I want to be the first lung transplant recipient to ride a motorcycle to, t- <laughs> to South America. So I'll need, if I do keep, if I ever sell any, I think the one I'll probably keep is the tourreg Agreed. I don't know. Yep. I love them all, though. It's hard yeah. to, it's like your babies. You don't want to get rid of your children. Well, some people <laughs> oh, might want I, to. Well,
0: you haven't met my kids.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love them. I told my wife, I'm like. I don't want to leave you with a bunch of things to to have to get rid of after I die. But then I, then I start talking like that, and she starts crying, so I can't yeah. talk about that stuff <laughs> With me. I, I, like I said, I couldn't have gallows humor. <laughs> I told her I'll help her pick out her next boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like that too much. But you can't ride your bikes? Yeah, you can't ride the bikes. Yeah. No. Those are mine. She has to keep the pins Gowers. She has to keep that. <laughs>
2: I have the
0: famous last question. Go on, do your last question.
2: Now, this is a bit, this might seem a bit odd. I've been in two minds to swear the It only came to me as we've been chatting, but I'm not going to get the chance to ask somebody Think this. Think
0: it through before you ask it because he accuses me of having no filter, Brett, but he's That's all right. possibly worse
1: than me. Okay, buckle up.
2: Brett, where were you on the day of 9 11? Were you flying in America at the time?
1: I was on what they call on reserve, which is like being on call. So oh, I was yeah. I was sitting in Chicago where I was based at the time at a hotel on call and I I remember seeing it on the news like everybody else.
2: Right. Oh, I just thought maybe if you'd been up in the air, well I would love to have heard what that was like.
1: No, that would have been yeah. an interesting story, yeah, but people ask me that a lot. And unfortunately my story is not very good. I didn't well, know but, divert to Canada or yeah. anything like that. But okay. uh yeah, unfortunately I knew two of the pilots involved in that.
0: Oh really? That's horrendous. Yeah.
1: Um One of them I had, uh, I used to be an instructor pilot for for my company and uh, out in Denver. And so one of the pilots who was the co-pilot on the one that hit the World Trade Center, I had actually trained him. So I'd worked with him for about three month, three weeks, I should say, and, and knew him really well, really good guy. And then the other one was a training, another training guy that I knew. And he was the captain of the Flight 93 that crashed in Pennsylvania. And I knew him. Fairly well as well as as a work work colleague. So uh, yeah, just it, that kind of hit me hard just knowing. Yeah, I bet. You know, mm. I didn't expect to know anybody out of a company as big as mine, and let alone two of them.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's incredible. Brought the mood down even oh, lower, Noel. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for that.
1: <laughs> oh, Jesus, well, you know. it's normally a funny
0: podcast. This one.
1: You can blame Noel for his
0: last one. <laughs> Brett, thank you so much for doing this. We need to just give the the last. Bigride.org is it? Is that the right web address?
1: You got it. Yep.
0: Lastbigride.org, and then jump on and stick some money in there. We need at least a thousand people to put a fiver in there. Let's get it up to twenty-five thousand dollars. That would be. That would be great. Do you know what? On these things, normally they reckon the throughput of these social media things—if this counts as social media—you get about one percent of people buying something or contributing or something like that. But we need um, We need everybody to do it this time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that would be amazing. Mm. And I'll come, I'll come through when I come to the UK and, and thank everybody individually. Yeah.
0: Well, what do you say after a story like that? Just massive admiration for Brett and the way he's approaching this. There's one positive thing we can do, and that's donate. So please stick a fiver in, lastbigride.org. Try and get this horrible disease cured right we'll see you next time thanks for listening we really appreciate your support don't forget you can follow us on facebook and instagram and if you really appreciate what we do you could consider supporting us on patreon or buy us a coffee links are available on our website which is tampodcast.com tampodcast.com where we also have a limited selection of branded stuff. But either way, please keep listening and spreading the word. See you next time.